Jackson as Dr. Nora Hart in the 1992 TV movie Black Death. I'm your host Stephanie, and this is The End. When this special aired, my sister and I became, I won't say obsessed with it, but we must have watched it at least a half a dozen times. Which is saying something, because it means for some reason we decided ahead of time to tape it on our family's VCR. Yes, I am old. Um, Then we watched it again and again, often quoting the scene you just heard, though for some reason over the years in my memory that line became, it's the plague, Jerry. I don't know why. Anyway, unlike me, my sister actually knows something about infectious diseases and viruses. So when the first whispers about Zika surfaced, and my sis mentioned in passing, calmly, without any kind of embellishment, that this was one that could really take hold, I listened. And thanks to shows like Black Death, but more so because of this episode's book, Camus' The Plague, I did what I always do and started watching and listening for the signs. Black Death, the TV special, starts, if I recall correctly, with a classic contagious person on an airplane scene. In Camus' novel, The Plague, it starts just as it often has in real life with the rats. Though it's been suggested recently that it was gerbils and not rats responsible for bringing the bubonic plague to Europe. Rats, or more specifically, fleas carried by rats, are the culprits we all learned about in history class. So for our purposes, let's stick with the rat, for this is who heralds the crisis in the French-Algerian town of Oran. This is who comes spilling out into the streets, in numbers so great that we more than once read of their still warm, infected bodies being inescapably underfoot. But let's go back a bit. In Oran, Camus sets up this atmosphere that's incredibly claustrophobic, even before a single infection appears. It's a dull, dry place on a kind of a plateau, a commercial port city that's geographically very close to the sea, but at street level cut off from all view of it. In Camus' words, the town itself, let us admit it, is ugly. It has a smug, placid air and you need time to discover what it is that makes it different from so many business centers in other parts of the world. How conjure up a picture, for instance, of a town without pigeons, without any trees or gardens, where you never hear the beat of wings or the rustle of leaves. During the summer, the sun bakes the houses bone dry, sprinkles our walls with grayish dust, and you have no option but to survive those days of fire indoors, behind closed shutters. So it's a populated place, but almost kind of lifeless in a way. There's industry and activity going on, but we're left with the impression that it's all pointless, or at the very least, completely unnoteworthy. The truth, says the narrator, is that everyone is bored. So it's into this parched, isolated, uninspired existence that the rats emerge, ushering in with graphic realness the squishy, soppy world of illness and disease. And here's another excerpt. On the fourth day, the rats began to come out and die in batches. From basements, cellars, and sewers, they emerged in long, wavering files into the light of day, swayed helplessly, then did a sort of pirouette, and fell dead at the feet of the horrified onlookers. At night, 
In passages and alleys, their shrill little death cries could be clearly heard. In the mornings, the bodies were found lining the gutters, each with a gout of blood, like a red flower, on its tapering muzzle. And the discomfort only increases as the disease spreads to humans and the death count grows worse with each passing day. And with a bit of a foreshadowing simile, can we draw the parallel between the spilling out of the rats and the town itself? He says, It was as if the earth on which our houses stood were being purged of its secreted humors, thrusting up to the surface the abscesses and pus clots that had been forming in its entrails. You must picture the consternation of our little town, hitherto so tranquil, and now, out of the blue, shaken to its core, like a quite healthy man who all of a sudden feels his temperature shoot up and the blood seething like wildfire in his veins. The gore around the deaths of the rats is shocking, but at the same time, it eases us into the confrontation that's still to come. That is, with our own human frailty and mortality as played out in the very messy deaths that await the townspeople themselves. deteriorate, we, via Dr. Ryu, encounter characters experiencing the plague each in their own way, with a common thread of absurdity running through their stories. We could probably spend an entire episode on Taru, his, with his strangely disconnected view of things, and of course, what more fruitless activity could there be for a human than to repeatedly enact this ritual he observes across the way of the old man spitting on cats in the alley below. But let's focus here on Rambert and Grand, for whom there's a repeated contrast in subtly different ways of the ridiculousness of human personalities and societal structures against this almost surreal scale of tragedy. Some examples. First, there's Rambert in his trial-esque quest to escape. Everyone is well and truly trapped in the town at this point. The only thing getting in or out are telegrams. Rambert, trying endlessly to navigate the town's bureaucracy and gain special permission to leave, encounters one kind of official after another, including, finally, those whom he labels, and this is a quote, the traditionalists. These, the narrator says, were by far the greatest number, who referred Rambert to another office or recommended some new method of approach. And then there's Grand, the aspiring artist with a secret writing project. So in this scene, Grand and the doctor are walking down the street together, and Grand just seems kind of itching to, to get something out, um, and it's all against the, the backdrop of, um, you know, the plague taking hold and kind of pulsing behind them in the town. Out in the street, it seemed to Rue that the night was full of whispers. Somewhere in the black depths above the street lamps, there was a low soughing that brought to his mind that unseen flail threshing incessantly the languid air of which Panalu had spoken. Happily, happily, Grand muttered, then paused. Ryu asked him what he was going to say. Happily, of my work. Ah, yes, Ryu said. That's something, anyhow. Then, so as to not hear that eerie whistling in the air, he asked Grand if he was getting good results. Well, yes, I think I'm making headway. Have you much more to do? Grand began to show an animation unlike his usual self, and his voice took ardor from the spirits he had drunk. 
I don't know. But that's not the point, Doctor. Yes, I can assure you that's not the point. It was too dark to see clearly, but Rio had the impression that he was waving his arms. He seemed to be working himself up to say something, and when he spoke, the words came with a rush. What I really want, Doctor, is this. On the day when the manuscript reaches the publisher, I want him to stand up, after he's read it through, of course, and say to his staff, Gentlemen, hats off! Rio was dumbfounded, and, to his amazement, he saw, or seemed to see, the man beside him making as if to take off his hat with a sweeping gesture, bringing his hand to his head, then holding his arm out straight in front of him. That queer whistling overhead seemed to gather force. So you see, Grand added, it's got to be... flawless. Though he knew little of the literary world, Rio had a suspicion that things didn't happen in it quite so picturesquely. That, for instance, publishers do not keep their hats on in their offices. But of course, one never can tell, and Rio preferred to hold his peace. Try as he might to shut his ears to it, he still was listening to that eerie sound above, the whispering of the plague. They had reached the part of the town where Grand lived, and, as it was on a slight eminence, they felt the cool night breeze fanning their cheeks and at the same time carrying away from them the noises of the town. Grand went on talking, but Rio failed to follow all the worthy man was saying. All he gathered was that the work he was engaged on ran to a great many pages, and he was at almost excruciating pains to bring it to perfection. Evenings, whole weeks, spent on one word, just think, sometimes a mere conjunction. Grand stopped abruptly and seized the doctor by a button of his coat. The words came stumbling out of his almost toothless mouth. I'd like you to understand, doctor. I grant you it's easy enough to choose between a but and an and. It's a bit more difficult to decide between and and then. But definitely the hardest thing may be to know whether one should put an and or leave it out. Yes, Rio said. I see your point. He started walking again. Grand looked abashed and then stepped forwards and drew level. Sorry, he said awkwardly. I don't know what's come over me this evening. Rio patted his shoulder encouragingly, saying he'd been much interested in what Grant had said and would like to help him. This seemed to reassure Grant, and when they reached his place, he suggested, after some slight hesitation, that the doctor should come in for a bit. Rio agreed. They entered the dining room, and Grant gave him a chair beside a table strewn with sheets of paper covered with writing and a microscopic hand crisscrossed with corrections. Yes, that's it, he said, in answer to the doctor's questioning glance. But won't you drink something? I have some wine. Rhea declined. He was bending over the manuscript. No, don't look, Grant said. It's my opening phrase, and it's giving trouble, no end of trouble. He too was gazing at the sheets of paper on the table, and his hand seemed irresistibly drawn to one of them. Finally, he picked it up and held it to the shade with an electric bulb, so that the light shone through. The paper shook in his hand, and Rhea noticed that it was and Rio noticed that his forehead was moist with sweat. Sit down, he said, and read it to me. Yes. There was a timid gratitude in Grant's eyes and smile. I think I'd like you to hear it. He waited for a while, still gazing at the writing, then sat down. Meanwhile, Rio was listening to the curious buzzing sound that was rising from the streets as if in answer to the sighings of the plague. At that moment, he had a preternaturally vivid awareness of the town stretched out below, a victim world secluded and apart, and of the groans of agony stifled in its darkness. Then, pitched low but clear, Grand's voice came to his ears. One fine morning in the month of May, 
an elegant young horsewoman might have been seen riding a handsome sorrel mare along the flowery avenues of the Bois du Boulogne. Silence returned, and with it the vague murmur of the prostrate town. Grant had put down the sheet and was still staring at it. After a while, he looked up. What do you think of it? Ryu replied that this, that this opening phrase had whetted his curiosity. He'd like to hear what followed. Whereat Grant told him he'd got it all wrong. He seemed excited and slapped the papers on the table with the flat of his hand. That's only a rough draft. Once I've succeeded in rendering perfectly the picture in my mind's eye, once my words have the exact tempo of this ride, the horse is trotting, one, two, three, one, two, three, see what I mean? The rest will come more easily, and what's even more important, the illusion will be such that from the very first words it will be possible to say, hats off. But before that, he admitted, there was lots of hard work to be done. He'd never dream of handing that sentence to the printer in its present form. For though it sometimes satisfied him, he was fully aware that it didn't quite hit the mark as yet, and also that to some extent it had a facility of tone approximating, remotely, perhaps but recognizably, to the commonplace. That was more or less what he was saying when they heard the sound of people running in the street below the window. Rhea stood up. Just wait and see what I make of it, Grant said, and glancing towards the window, added, When all this is over. But then the sound of hurried footsteps came again. He was already halfway down the stairs, and when he stepped out into the street, two men brushed past him. They seemed to be on their way to one of the town gates. In fact, what with the heat and the plague, some of our fellow citizens were losing their heads. There had already been some scenes of violence, and nightly attempts were made to elude the sentries and escape to the outside world. The interiors for Black Death, the TV special, were shot in Toronto, where 13 years ago almost half a million of us gathered in the fields of Downsview for the benefit concert commonly referred to as SARSFest. The viral respiratory disease had spread like a spider's web among travelers taking it with them across the globe. 20% of all the confirmed SARS cases in Canada were among healthcare workers, and when all was said and done, 44 people had died here, with 774 deaths worldwide. Now, as I record this, the Brazil Olympics are less than a month away, and another virus, this one spread primarily through bites from infected mosquitoes, has people asking all kinds of questions about how far we should go in service of this idea of the whole world coming together, and at what cost. So much of the suffering in the plague happens because a few people in charge weren't prepared to acknowledge the truth. But once the disease takes hold of the town, it's almost like the truth is all that remains. I want to end this episode by reading a couple more separate passages, just because they're really good examples of the truth being laid bare at both macro and micro levels and at different scales. The first one is when the narrator shares his view that, and I quote, the evil that is in the world always comes of ignorance and good intentions may do as much harm as malevolence if they lack understanding. On the whole, men are more good than bad. That, however, isn't the real point. But they are more or less ignorant, and it is this that we call vice or virtue, the most incorrigible vice being that of an ignorance which fancies it knows everything and therefore claims for itself the right to kill. The soul of the murderer is blind, and there can be no true goodness nor true love without the utmost clear-sightedness. This next one is about how ultimately alone everyone is as they try to grapple with what's happening to them and their loved ones. Moreover, in this extremity of solitude, none could count on any help from his neighbor. 
each had to bear the load of his troubles alone. If, by some chance, one of us tried to unburden himself or say something about his feelings, the reply he got, whatever it might be, usually wounded him. And then it dawned on him that he and the man with him weren't talking about the same thing. For while he himself spoke from the depths of long days of brooding upon his personal distress, and the image he had tried to impart had been slowly shaped and proved in the fires of passion and regret, this meant nothing to the man to whom he was speaking, and who pictured a conventional emotion, a grief that is traded on the marketplace, mass-produced. Whether friendly or hostile, the reply always missed fire, and the attempt to communicate had to be given up. This was true of those at least for whom silence was unbearable, and since the others could not find the truly expressive word, they resigned themselves to using the current coin of language, the commonplaces of plain narrative, of anecdote, and of their daily paper. So, in these cases, too, even the sincerest grief had to make do with the set phrases of ordinary conversation. Only on these terms could the prisoners of the plague ensure the sympathy of their door porter and the interest of their hearers. And finally, this passage, which I think gives a perfect window into Dr. Rue's typically hidden inner struggle, as he treats all his patients and is faced with so much suffering and death. And on another level, it also just sums up the book really nicely. Lifting the coverlet and chemise, he gazed in silence at the red blotches on the girl's thighs and stomach, the swollen glands. After one glance, the mother broke into shrill, uncontrollable cries of grief. And every evening, mothers wailed thus with a distraught abstraction, as their eyes fell on those fatal stigmata on limbs and bellies. Every evening, hands gripped Ryu's arms. There was a rush of useless words, promises, and tears. Every evening, the nearing toxin of the ambulance provoked scenes as vain as every form of grief. Ryu had nothing to look forward to, but a long sequence of such scenes, renewed again and again. Yes, plague, like abstraction, was monotonous. Perhaps only one factor changed, and that was Ryu himself. Standing at the foot of the Statue of the Republic that evening, he felt it. All he was conscious of was a bleak indifference steadily gaining on him, as he gazed at the door of the hotel Rambert had just entered. After these wearing weeks, after all those nightfalls when the townsfolk poured into the streets, Ryu had learned that he need no longer steel himself against pity. One grows out of pity when it's useless. And in this feeling, that his heart had slowly closed in on itself, the doctor found a solace, his only solace, for the almost unendurable burden of his days. This, he knew, would make his task easier, and therefore he was glad of it. That's it for episode three, and in fact, that's it for the very first mini-season of The End. Let's call it season 1A, or maybe 0.1, the preview season. The End will be back really soon with new episodes, and I'm working on some that are not just myself yammering on about a book, but instead author interviews, some with writers you know, and some with writers I think you'll be glad to get to know. And as always, we'll be talking about disasters, dystopias, and doomsday scenarios, apocalypse stories, and why we love them. If that sounds like something you're into, please hit subscribe in iTunes and never miss an episode.